Welcome. I'm Jessica Ward. I'm Luca Lucarini. And I'm Elon Levy. And together, we are your hosts for the Health Podcast Series brought to you by Dentons. These sessions will cover various topics in the health tech, life sciences, and healthcare sectors, and aims to provide you with small segments that you can listen to on the go. You can find our episodes at dentons.com on our podcast page. There you can access our episodes as well as a description for each topic and information on our speakers. And now over to our podcast topics and speakers. In today's episode, we are sitting down with Jennifer Gold, Director of Legal Services and Privacy at the Ontario Medical Association. She will be discussing the laws and regulations surrounding medical clinics. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So today we are discussing medical clinics and the laws and regulations surrounding them. So to get started, can you describe to us what we are discussing when we're talking about a medical clinic today? Is that referencing all clinics from your family doctor's office up to private specialist clinics? Or are there different rules and regulations to consider depending on the type of clinic? It's, it's a really good question um, because this is an extremely complex space. Um, so you have practices that are owned and operated by physicians, um, you know, whether it be a family doctor or a specialist. You have um, clinics that are operated by entrepreneurial business owners, um, whether independently or through a chain, um, such as Apple Tree. Um, that's one of that's a chain here in Toronto that owns um, a chain of medical practices. Um, you have uh, what are called family health teams. Um, which are owned and operated uh, usually by a group of, of practitioners operating under a primary care model called the family health team, which brings a group of interdisciplinary practitioners together. Um, and you can also have interdisciplinary um, professionals working together, owning a practice, a clinic outside of a family health team model. So there are many, many different ways um, that physicians um, and other healthcare practitioners can get together um, or work independently and and own and operate a clinic. Um, I should also add there's something called an independent health facility, which is also has its own um, set of regulation and statutory authority um, to operate things like um, re, uh, radiation clinics, like x-ray clinics uh, and that sort of thing. So it, it is a very complicated space um, and there are different um, rules and regulations um, and laws that apply uh, depending on, on what kind of entity you are. So can you give us a general overview of the laws and regulations that an entrepreneurial clinic needs to be aware of? Yeah, so it's it's a very interesting question um, because there are no specific rules that govern an independently owned uh, medical clinic. So if you are a business person that operates a medical clinic, there are no special rules for you other than, um, you know, your uh, run of the mill occupational health and safety laws or zoning laws or public health rules. So um, a lot of the rules that govern these practices, they don't apply to the business owner. They're sort of indirect to the practitioners that work there. So you have um, physicians working there and they have their own sets of rules and regulations under their college, which is their governing body um, and the Medicine Act and the Regulated Health Professions Act. Um, but the, the clinic owners themselves are not subject to those rules, um, which can sometimes cause uh, a butting of heads. Um, and also sometimes uh, 
an abdication or uncertainty around who's responsible for what. Um, I will say that business owner can be a health information custodian under the Personal Health Information Protection Act, or PHIPAA. Um, so the clinic owner can be responsible for um, the keeping and um, safety of the medical records um, and requiring to follow those rules. Uh, so that, that is one space in which they are uh, required to do certain things. Um, it's interesting because out West, um, I think uh, in Alberta and possibly BC, they have a different model where um, there has to be a medical director on site and the medical director is indirectly responsible for certain things. So um, it adds a layer of, of regulation. Um, but without that, uh, it's sometimes a bit of a wild west in terms of who's responsible for what uh, in Ontario for medical clinics. Interesting. So there are some responsibilities and obligations for owners of entrepreneurial clinics with the laws around regulated professionals. What about vicarious liability? Are the owners of medical clinics subject to any sort of vicarious liability for the regulated professionals in their clinic? Generally, they wouldn't be responsible for any of the professional liability pieces of the physicians. The physicians have their own um, uh, defense uh, insurance-like product through the Canadian Medical Protective Association. So that would be similar to LawPro um, for lawyers. Uh, so they have that uh, the mutual uh, defense organization and they will cover the professional responsibility. That's generally um, who the patients will come after uh, if something goes wrong. So um, you very, very rarely would hear of a patient coming after a clinic owner. They would really only come after the physician. Um, so either, you know, with a malpractice litigation or a complaint to the college, um, that would go to the physician and, and then the CMPA would usually step in and defend the physician. So you wouldn't necessarily, not that I can think of, um, a situation where a clinic owner would end up in, the, in, in that. Um, it may be a little different if let's say it's a uh, a plastic surgery clinic or something where there um, are more responsibilities or, or medically unnecessary services going on. I can see that having um, more effects. Uh, another element of um, liability would be um, depending on who actually employs the staff at the clinic. So um, like the admin staff, or if there's a nurse on staff, like are they working for the owner or are they working for the physician? Um, so, so that can add an, another layer of complexity. Very interesting. And of course, a very complex topic. So what about for regulated professionals themselves, if they are working out of an entrepreneurial clinic or if they are working through a group of practitioners? What are some rules and regulations to be aware of? So we always advise um, physicians when they contact the Ontario Medical Association to have a contract um, with the owner or with the, uh, with the group of practitioners that they're, that they're working with. Um, and some things that uh, we want them to be aware of with, uh, with an entrepreneur type situation is, um, for example, who is that custodian that we spoke of earlier of the health records? Is it going to be the clinic owner or the physician? Um, and if it's going to be the clinic owner, they have to accept that um, they will be taking on some additional responsibilities. Um, for example, if they're going to keep those medical records, the physicians have their own obligations, um, their own professional obligations under their college to retain those records for um, at least 10 years. 
um, for example. So we, we suggest that that be laid out in the contract. Um, also things like employment of the um, admin staff. Uh, you know, sometimes the physician is paying like a, a percentage of their billings. Um, you know, and it's not in the contract, it's not exactly clear whose employee it is. Um, you know, we would want it to be clear that the employee is the employee of the business owner, for example, um, because it has huge implications for the physician if that person is terminated. Um, other things that, you know, uh, we, we tell physicians to look out for are, uh, you know, they're, what they're gonna be supplied in terms of uh, products um, and upkeep of the office, uh, we, you know, we do hear stories of poor upkeep, for example, um, when, when it uh, can be a business, um, they don't have the same incentive to keep the practice um, running and, and clean, for example. Um, what else? When it's a group of practitioners, again, um, who has control over the patients and the medical records is always a big issue. Um, so we want them to set that out ahead of time. Um, and also the electronic medical record. So as uh, physician practices have shifted uh, to electronic records from paper records, um, it's important to set out, um, you know, who, who's gonna sign that contract? Like, is it the business owner who is gonna work with the vendor and then all the physicians will, um, you know, have a license to use the system or is the physician group or one lead physician going to sign that contract, like who's responsible for that relationship with the vendor? And then what will happen upon dissolution of, of that relationship? What happens to that um, physician's patients within the EMR? So those are, those are some uh, things uh, to consider. Um, also uh, how the billing splits will work, um, who owns what that they brought into the practice, whether it be like supplies or furniture. Um, and then, uh, we always tell our, our physicians who contact us to speak to accountants and financial advisors about things like um, HST and uh, setting up um, medicine professional corporations and also um, how a, a rental agreement will work, um, who's going to sign it, and then how will the other uh, individuals who are you know, paying overhead, how will they be um, responsible uh, for, for anything in that commercial lease. So hugely important overall to be aware and everyone to understand the relationships that interplay in these settings and also the, the contractual relationships that are underlying them. Yeah, and there's a long history um, in medicine of working more informally um, and not having contracts. So um, we are trying to remind physicians um, and you know, if, if I could, I would also encourage business owners to ensure that they have contracts in place because I, I do think it's important to, for all parties to understand um, the relationship and their obligations, especially um, since you have uh, patients involved and, and you know, there, there are uh, broader responsibilities um, and vulnerable populations. Absolutely. So how does, um, shifting gears, um, how does the, the privacy obligations how does that apply with, uh, with practitioners and with these records and with the need to retain records for 10 years? How can, um, how can clinicians ensure that their obligations are maintained, including to comply with laws such as holding the records in Canada when these are held electronically? Um, how, how, does that, how does that work? So when um, a physician uh, enters into an agreement, um, either with a clinic owner or with, with colleagues to cost share in a practice, 
Um, we do recommend setting out who is the health information custodian and what will happen um, when the relationship ends. So it's important that the parties agree that either the health information custodian will um, remain responsible for the records and take a copy with them and so that they can um, fulfill their obligation to retain the records uh, for a minimum of 10 years under the, uh, and it can be longer. If it's a pediatrician, it's uh, 18, like until the patient is um, 18 plus 10 years. Uh, so it can be quite a long time. So uh, to either retain those records and keep them with them or to um, sign an agreement that the, the practice will retain those agreements, uh, sorry, will retain those records um, with access when required. So we would uh, call that a retention and access agreement uh, that can be signed either when the physician is leaving um, or clauses of that nature can be built into the original agreement um, to ensure that everybody's meeting their obligations. And that's um, both for the sake of um, the patients um, and the physicians uh, to, to ensure that you know, they have access to those records in case there's litigation going forward. Very interesting. And now, so since um, the, maintain, the maintenance of electronic records is relatively new, it seems like perhaps some pitfalls might arise as we're looking forward into the next few years. Is that tenure to, to longer, depending on if it's a minor, um, depending on any, any issues that might arise going it, it is relatively new and we are seeing um, some interesting issues pop up because when the original, um, you know, the, P, the PHIPAA legislation was passed, um, it was intended for paper records. Um, and the idea was, uh, you know, one person would be responsible for these paper records and presumably that person would take those records or a copy of those records with them um, and destroy them when they no longer needed them. Now they exist, um, you know, to, to infinity in a, an electronic uh, space. Um, and really, even if you ask a vendor to delete those records, uh, they often can't. So the most they can do is archive them. So they do exist in some form um, for a very long time. So, you know, you can see the benefit is, okay, well, I'm definitely retaining those records for those 10 years as I'm required. Um, but at the same time, the records are living on in different places, depending on if a physician moves multiple times, the, those records exist now um, in different places. So you have someone leaving like an inadvertent digital footprint all over the province. So it's, um, it's a bit of a paradox because the intent is to, you know, bolster privacy with, um, you know, new law and, and cybersecurity rules and regulations and EMRs. But at the same time, you are opening um, privacy and medical records, generally speaking, to a bit more risk, the more these records exist um, everywhere a physician goes. So, and, and then they can't be deleted. So they, they continue to exist in some form, um, you know, whether they're locked and archived or whether there's like a role-based administrative access um, type of system that where everyone agrees not to go into them anymore and, and look at them. Uh, you do have that additional potential exposure. Um, and I, I, I don't think there's an answer to this question right now. It's something that um, it's it's unfolding in real time, and um, you know we've been speaking um, to uh, our colleagues at the Ministry of Health about it, and to the Information Privacy Commissioner. And you know I think over the next years we'll see some changes um, that it, you know that take some of these new uh, realities into account. Interesting, certainly an evolving an evolving area that will yeah. see evolve, continue to evolve. I hope so. <laughs> 
<laughs> so to that, and um, maybe we can end on, in terms of the privacy commissioners, we know the privacy laws are changing and evolving and trying to keep up with um, the digitization of records. So can you tell us a little about the powers of privacy commissioners to, to regulate privacy in the medical clinic space and, um, and enforce those regulations and how that, how that is changing and any, um, any developments that you see on the horizon? Yeah, well, the, the providers are, are already under there and they can be um, penalized and fined for their um, custodianship, like for improper uh, use or collection or disclosure. Um, but what is, um, you know, what, what's being uh, discussed and, and some of us are, are talking about is this idea that um, the, the, the companies that own the medical records, um, that they would also be um, regulated in some way, because right now they are not under the, um, they're not governed by PHIPAA. So just the practitioners are, and in some cases, um, certain um, electronic pieces of the puzzle, but not the broader uh, uh, electronic medical record companies. They're largely um, left out and the requirements are downloaded to the, to let's say like a physician or a social worker or someone um, who doesn't have the capacity uh, to necessarily uh, in, induce that functionality in the medical record. Um, but since the IPC doesn't have the authority right now over the vendors, um, what they do is they um, put the requirements on healthcare practitioners or other uh, custodians and those individuals, um, it's sort of an indirect regulation, then the vendors will step up because they know that um, these requirements are needed um, by the uh, physician or the, the nurse in question. So it's, um, it's a good business model for the uh, the vendors, um, but it's uh, it does leave some holes in privacy. And of course, and so by vendors being brought under this umbrella, that might help mitigate some of the risk that we discussed earlier with there being multiple copies of data. Exactly, exactly. It would be simpler to solve some of these problems um, through through that vein. So it sounds like a proactive step for vendors at this time could be to start um, tightening up their privacy processes or ensuring that uh, they, they would be compliant if they were brought under this, this regulatory framework. I, I think so. Well, Jennifer, that's all very interesting and informative and good to know. And it'll be very interesting to see in the future um, how privacy develops in this space. So thank you so much for being here with us today and for taking your time to discuss this. We, we really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Denton's is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see dentons.com for legal notices. Our speakers from this podcast episode or any other professional in our group would be pleased to speak with you on today's topic or any other related topic. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for other episodes.